So I'm really excited to be standing in this position up here this morning, as opposed to over there. Uh, my first chance to preach at St. Peter's, and it is an awesome set of passages to be starting with, I think. Um, this is the last of the sermons in our series, Marked by Charcoal, which we started at the beginning of November, when St. Peter's started. Uh, we've been looking at vignettes from Peter's life in the book of Acts. Uh, and so far, things have been looking pretty good for Peter. Peter has been um, showing himself to be, to be quite the guy. Uh, we've had these scenes in which Peter points away from himself to Jesus, where Peter is filled with the Spirit and stands before a council and defends his proclamation about Jesus being the only way for salvation. And we saw him last week in prison, but fully reliant that God is the only one who's going to be able to save him. Now, those are good scenes, good images that we get of Peter. This week's readings are not quite so good. But before we get to today's scenes, we need to back up a little bit, and we need to look at some of the context, some of the history that's led us up to the point that we're at this morning, why it is that we're in the place that we are, these passages that we heard from. So the sermon's basically going to break up into three sections. The first part is going to be how it is that we ended up here, and it is the story of Peter's coming to terms with how big the gospel really is. The second part of the sermon is going to be showing how Peter, after all of that, after having, seeing how big this gospel really is, how he and the other Christians begin to distort that gospel. And finally, I want to talk about the hope that these passages offer in the midst of all that distortion. Um, hope for all of us who, even though we continue to mess it up and get it wrong, uh, there is hope in it. So, first part, the history. How did we get here? So, one of the major problems in the spread of the good news about Jesus is what to do with people who are coming to Jesus but are not Jews. Now, Gentiles, I'm going to keep using this word Gentiles throughout the, service, or throughout the sermon. It's basically just a fancy word meaning everybody who's not a Jew. Okay? So Gentiles means everybody who's not a Jew. Now, it might seem like a strange question to ask what to do with these Gentiles since aren't Judaism and Christianity different religions after all? Um, well, yes and no. I mean, given our distance from it, it does seem a bit strange to talk about it, but Jesus was a Jew, and all the first disciples were Jews, and everybody who turns to Jesus at the beginning of the book of Acts are Jews. But there were also Gentiles sometimes who wanted to come, and they wanted to follow the God of Israel. And what do you do with these people? It was okay in the Old Testament if they wanted to come and follow the God of Israel, but they had to do a few things first. They first had to be circumcised. They first had to begin following the law of Moses. They essentially had to become Jews. But the big question the church is facing at this point is, is Christianity going to be a sect within Judaism, or is it going to be its own thing? Is this good news about Jesus good because he's opened the gates for all of us to become Jews, or is it good news because all people have now been given a way to go to God directly through Jesus without first becoming Jews. In other words, who's in and who's out is no longer defined by ethnic boundaries or, or nationalistic boundaries. So it's a big question, and it's not a dead question either. Let's put it a different way, modern way. What does it look like for the gospel to take root in China or India or Nigeria or Cuba? Are those people only truly Christians if they do things the way that we do them? If their music and their dress and their churches and their communities look like ours do in the West? Let's take another step back and ask an even more fundamental question than that. What did Jesus do anyway? 
What meaning does his death, life, resurrection, ascension have for the way we live and the way we relate to God? So what on the surface seems like a discussion about circumcision and about food laws is actually a discussion about what it means to follow Jesus. What does that actually look like? And this question gets its first embodiment in the book of Acts in a guy named Cornelius. And Cornelius is a Roman centurion who's living in a place called Caesarea. And it's quite a remarkable story, actually, how he comes to faith. One day when Cornelius was praying, he saw a vision in which an angel of God came to him and said, Cornelius! And Cornelius replied, what is it, Lord? You know, as you do. And the angel said to him that his prayers and his alms had been heard, and that he was to send men to a place called Joppa, and he was to find a man named Simon Peter, and bring this Simon Peter back to Caesarea. So that's exactly what Cornelius does. I mean, you don't directly disobey the word of God when it comes to you and says, do this. And these men, as they're approaching the city of Joppa, Peter is there, and he goes up on the roof of his house to pray. Now, it's lunchtime, and Peter is getting hungry, maybe a little bit hangry, as I like to get. Um, and Peter falls into a sort of trance. And he, too, sees a vision. I mean, this is serious stuff. And Peter's vision, the heavens open up, and a sheet descends from the sky, being held up by its four corners. And it's covered in all of these different animals, animals and birds and reptiles. And what's significant about that is Jews had very strict dietary laws. They weren't allowed to eat a whole bunch of stuff. There were lots of birds they weren't allowed to eat. They were not allowed to eat reptiles. So this particular gathering of animals on this sheet would have been detestable to any Orthodox Jew. But a voice calls out to Peter and says, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now, as any good Jew would respond, Peter says, By no means. I've never eaten anything that is, that is common or unclean. But the Lord responds by saying to Peter, what God has made clean, do not call common. And this happens three times. And as Peter is sitting there wondering what on earth this could possibly mean, these men arrive from Cornelius. And the Spirit says to Peter, go down, meet these three men, they're waiting for you outside, and go with them. Wherever they ask you to go, go with them without hesitation. So he did. He accompanies them back to Caesarea, to Cornelius' home. And in Cornelius' home is this big gathering of people who are waiting there for Peter. And Peter tells them all about Jesus. He tells them how Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power. He tells them how Jesus was crucified, but how God raised him from the dead. He tells them how anyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sin. He preached the gospel to them. And just as a little aside, what's super helpful about that is how simple the gospel is in this section. The longer it seems that we're Christians, the more complex the gospel becomes, and it becomes an even scarier and more intimidating thing to share because it's too big. I need to say all of it. But for Peter, it's simple. The gospel is that Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit, that he was crucified, but that God raised him, and that anybody who believes in his name will receive forgiveness of sins. It's that simple. And as Peter was speaking to all these people, sharing with them the gospel, the Holy Spirit falls on all of them. And Peter and those who went with him from Joppa were amazed at this. Because the Spirit is falling not only on Jews, but also on Gentiles, those who were not Jews. 
And after this happens, Peter sees no reason why they shouldn't all be baptized right then and there. And that's exactly what he does. But there's a problem, because word of this event starts to spread throughout the region. And when Peter goes up to Jerusalem, he's criticized for what he did. He's criticized for having gone to the home of a Gentile, an uncircumcised man, and eaten with them and stayed with them. But Peter doesn't get angry. He just tells them everything that had happened. He tells them about the vision that he received. He tells them about going to Cornelius, how they believed, how they were baptized. And the most amazing thing is that they don't push back against him. They don't raise any further objections. Look what it says in Acts 11.18. When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Awesome. I mean, you can just imagine Peter at that moment ready to push back and defend, and he doesn't have to because they just give in, and they say, Yeah, you're right. And after this, we see the conversion of more and more Gentiles. And Barnabas even goes to investigate what's happening in Antioch. And he says, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad over all of this. And wherever Paul and wherever Barnabas seem to go together, people are becoming Christians. They're starting to follow Jesus, Jews and Gentiles. I mean, up to now, it seems all pretty straightforward, doesn't it? With all these conversions taking place and God's obvious presence in all of this, the leaders in Jerusalem can easily reassure themselves that God's in it. But then it all just starts to come unraveled. Because Paul starts preaching an even more radical gospel than that. More radical than just Gentiles can become Jews and follow Jesus. See, the leaders in Jerusalem had no problem with the general concept of Gentile converts. I mean, most of the, lots of Old Testament passages talk about how the Gentiles are going to be brought in. But there's a storm gathering on the horizon. It's that question I brought up at the beginning. What means are they to use to bring them into the community? Up to now, it had been assumed that they would come in, that they would become followers by being circumcised and by following the law of Moses. But now something disturbing was happening. Paul was inviting Gentiles to become followers of Jesus without first being circumcised, without first following the entire law of Moses. So the question for these leaders in Jerusalem is, is their vision big enough to see the good news about Jesus, not as a reform movement within Judaism, but as good news for the entire world? And as the church of God, not as a sect, as a little group within Judaism, but as the international family of God? That is the question that these leaders have to start wrestling with. And this storm collides with the church in Antioch, and it shatters any kind of peace that had been established between Jews and Gentiles. Now, before going any further in this, I need to clarify something about chronology, because we've had two readings this morning from different books, and I need to show you how they fit together. So I'm of the opinion, and I'm not alone, that Paul wrote this letter to the Galatians prior to the Jerusalem Council that we read about in Acts 15. So that means that this passage, Galatians 2.11, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. I think that that is the same event as the other one, Acts 15.1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised. According to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So you can kind of see how they fit together there, the bolded sections. 
So this is the same event, and it's the same event that actually leads to the Jerusalem Council. Now, don't get confused. Cephas is just another name for Peter. It's an older name for Peter. So whenever you hear Cephas, think Peter. Whenever you hear Simon, think Peter. It gets confusing when we all have three names. Um, yeah, I have three names, but we won't go there now. Um, okay. You can call me Langford if you want, or you can call me Stuart. Anyway, let's not do that. Um, <laughs> Okay, so now that we're clear on the order of things, we can move on to talking about what actually happened in uh, in Galatians 2 in Antioch. So let me try to summarize this issue for you. The men who came down to Antioch from Judea were insisting that without circumcision, these Gentiles couldn't be saved. That's the issue in a nutshell. They're insisting that Jesus came to make a way for all of us to become Jews, law-abiding Jews, And without first becoming law-abiding Jews, we couldn't be saved. They were saying that faith in Jesus is not sufficient for salvation. They must add to faith circumcision and add to circumcision observing the law. In other words, they had to let Moses finish what Jesus started. Starts with grace, ends with law. So the issue, although it's kind of about circumcision, it's not really. It's an issue about salvation. It's an issue about what does it mean to follow Jesus, to be made right with God. Now, Paul sees this with real clarity, but Peter misses it. He just doesn't see it. He doesn't see how big of an issue this is. And at first, he's totally fine with eating with Gentiles who'd believed and been baptized. He's probably thinking back to Cornelius, his baptizing Cornelius, and he's looking at Gentiles and thinking, yeah, this is my brother and this is my sister in Christ. But then this group arrives supposedly from James, and they're insisting on circumcision for Gentiles. So Peter withdraws, and he says, you know what, I'm not going to eat with Gentiles anymore because this group has come down. And what's worse is that everybody gets drawn away with Peter, even Barnabas, even poor, sweet little Barnabas, who earlier went to Antioch and rejoiced over what he saw happening. Now he gets drawn away with Peter. And of all people, Peter should have been the one defending the inclusion of the Gentiles. I mean, after all, this is Peter who had the vision. This is Peter who baptized Cornelius. This is Peter who defended inclusion of the Gentiles the last time. But here he is, compromising on his position. But should we really be all that surprised? I mean, this is Peter, after all. We've seen Peter do some great stuff the last few weeks in the book of Acts, but we don't have to think back that far to remember Peter on the night Jesus was betrayed. The night Peter said to Jesus, even if everybody else abandons you, I will die with you. And then as soon as he's asked, are you with Jesus? No, I don't know who that is. And some commentators try to defend Peter here. They say that what these men from from Judea came and said to Peter was that word of his eating and mingling with Gentiles was reaching Jerusalem. And people who had not yet come to follow Jesus were being offended by that. And they were rejecting the good news. Because if following Jesus meant they would have to hang out with Gentiles, they weren't interested. So if that's true, if that's what these men came to say to Peter, then Peter withdraws for the best of intentions. He withdraws for the sake of those who hadn't yet heard the gospel. He didn't want them to be turned off of Jesus before they had even had a chance to hear the good news. It seems kind of noble, doesn't it? No, it doesn't, because it doesn't matter. 
It doesn't matter what Peter's intentions are in this. He still distorts the gospel. Good motives, bad motives, to distort the gospel is to misrepresent who Jesus is. It's like looking through the bottom of a glass. Yeah, you can see that there's something there, but you can't really see any clear, distinct lines. That's what they're doing. That's how they're presenting Jesus when they start to mess with the gospel. But who of us isn't open to that same criticism? That in order to stop our friends from thinking that this Jesus is nuts, we've softened the gospel. We've softened its radical call on our lives. Yes, we aren't afraid to repeat Jesus' words, I am the way and the truth and the life. But we might not mention that he says, uh, no one comes to the Father except through me. Sometimes we try to paint Jesus in the best light we possibly can. So we smooth out the gospel's rough edges. We just keep the nice bits. But when we do that, we've compromised the truth of the gospel. We've distorted it. We've cheapened it. And it doesn't matter what our intentions are. They could be great intentions. But by minimizing the radical call of the gospel, we cheapen it. And it's not just Peter who distorts the gospel in this scene. It's those who come down from Judea, too. But they do it in a different way. Instead of compromising on this radical inclusion of the Gentiles, they start adding stuff to it. They start adding requirements to the gospel. They add the requirement of circumcision and abiding by the law. They distort the gospel by making it about more than just a dead and resurrected Jesus. And this is just what we do as humans. We simply can't cope with the fact that salvation is not about me. It's not about something that I do or that I can't do. So we add stuff to it. Being right with God is about Jesus and this. Being right with God is about Jesus, which means I have to do this. And sometimes it's little things. Sometimes it's being right with God is about Jesus and reading my Bible every single day. Being right with God is about Jesus and spending at least 30 minutes in prayer every single day. Being right with God is about Jesus and making sure that I don't miss a Sunday or being nicer to the people around me or giving more. But sometimes it's bigger issues too. Sometimes being right with God is about Jesus and a particular expression of faith. It's about social justice. It's about environmental issues. Being right with God, even worse, becomes about a particular denomination. Yes, you're a Christian as long as you are an Anglican or a Baptist or a Catholic or whatever it might be. Or it becomes about a particular political persuasion. Or even worse, it becomes you're only a Christian as long as you're part of this nationality or this race. Now this is a really disturbing image. This is after Hitler co-ops the church in the Second World War. And he makes the gospel into that. I think it's devastating. That is the end goal, the end conclusion of making the gospel about Jesus and something else. And about race. And these additions to the gospel always start small. They start as little things and they always start with me. Something that I impose on myself. Or it's one thing, one little thing that I do better than other people. And therefore, I start to think that those people should do that too. 
And that's what's going to make them truly Christians and right with God. And it's bad enough when it starts with me, but it never stops there because we start to impose that on other people. Now, I like to go to movies. I uh, always have. And when I go to movies, I like to eat popcorn because who doesn't? It's salty and it's delicious. Now, at some point in going to movies, uh, back when I was single, I, I started imposing on myself this rule that I would only start eating popcorn the minute the actual movie starts. Okay? I would not touch the popcorn through the trivia section that you know, precedes the trailers. I wouldn't touch the popcorn through the trailers. I would only start eating the popcorn right when the movie starts. Now this is all well and good because this rule is only on myself. But when Carrie and I start dating, and Carrie doesn't have that same rule, she thinks that being a real movie-going popcorn eater means that you start eating the popcorn when it's hot and when it's warm and when it's, uh, you know? <laughs> so she's sitting there beside me, and she starts eating the popcorn, and I'm... <laughs> and you start getting resentful because this person beside you isn't abiding by that same rule. That person is not a real movie-going popcorn eater, as you are. Now, that's just a totally silly example. But it's a serious issue because once we've resolved that this is what it means to be a movie-going popcorn eater or this is what it means to be a true follower of Jesus, then no one else is one either unless they fit that same mold. And it's toxic. It's deadly, actually. We need only recall situations in some very recent history in which Christians are at war with one another over some insignificant little issue like Protestants and Catholics in Northern Ireland. Now, what I don't want you to do is to swing too far in the other direction either. I am not saying that you should not spend time reading your Bible or praying or going to church or that you shouldn't give of your time and resources. The gospel is about the transformation of our entire lives. Faith isn't just intellectual. It's about a total reorientation of our hearts, minds, and bodies away from ourselves and towards Jesus. And therefore, to say that these things that I've just talked about are not important is to do what Peter did. It's to compromise the radicalness of the gospel. It's to cheapen it. But let me be very clear. These can never be the things that make us right with God. The only reason we stand before God as his reconciled children is because of Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension. That's it. Nothing else. And this is what Paul sees so clearly in this passage, but that Peter misses, everybody misses. And even though circumcision and restrictions about food only seem like tiny, insignificant little things, Paul knows how toxic they are. And he's outraged at what he sees happening. He sees Peter's behavior as a disgraceful contradiction of the gospel. So he rebukes him to his face. Let's read from Galatians 2, 15, 16. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And how then, if we know this, Paul says to Peter, and have experienced it, 
Could we possibly start preaching another gospel than that? And if God has accepted all of us by faith, how can we break fellowship with these other believers? The problem is that both sides have failed to realize how big the gospel is. Peter's failed to realize this by compromising on his earlier position. He's demonstrated his failure to trust that the gospel is big enough to reach everybody who's offended by it. And the other side have failed to realize how big the gospel is by thinking that Jesus is not enough, that Jesus alone is not going to make us right with God. Either way, either side, the gospel has been neutered. And I feel so convicted by these two passages because we do this, I do this every day, both of these things, compromising and adding to the truth of the gospel. And I think it's because at the same time, the gospel is too difficult and too easy for us. It's too difficult because it requires that we let God work a radical reorientation in our hearts, turning away from ourselves and towards God. But it's too easy because it means surrendering the fact that surrendering to the fact that only Jesus can save me. So it's too hard and it's too easy. We just can't leave it alone. We have to compromise it or start adding stuff to it. But as convicted as I am by these texts, they also give me hope. Because our final picture of Peter isn't of one who's compromised on the truth of the gospel. We switch now to the Acts text. And we have Peter's courageous speech, defending inclusion of the Gentiles. And the only reason this happens is because Paul's rebuke actually works. Peter actually decides, yeah, you know what, Paul, you're right. And that gives me real hope. Because like Peter, we're not perfect. Perfection isn't even an option for us, so let's just take it off the table. All that God requires from us is that we be open to his teaching, to his leading, to his prompting, and to his correcting. We don't have to be perfect. We just have to be open to correction. And in this instance, that correction comes through the community. And it is not pretty, but it is beautiful. It's not pretty because Peter has to be rebuked publicly before the entire community. And who of you would like to be stood up before an entire community and called out on their hypocrisy? That would that'd be terrible. And it's not pretty for Paul either because he is the one who has to stand up and rebuke Peter, this guy who's a leader in the church, and not just Peter, everybody who's messed this up. So it's not pretty. But it's beautiful because Peter now knows what's at stake in all of this. When he spoke to the other elders and the other apostles after his vision and his encounter with Cornelius, he was simply telling them what happened. It was just a statement of fact, a statement of the events. But now he gives a passioned defense of salvation through Christ and through Christ alone. Because he knows that this is not just about Jewish cultural practices. The truth of the gospel and the future of the church are at stake here. So this is what he said. This is from Acts 15, 8 to 11. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? 
by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. These are the last words we hear Peter say in Acts. That's it. Jesus and Jesus alone is everything necessary for salvation. And I think it's some fitting last words because this chapter actually marks the turning point in the book of Acts. From at this point, Jerusalem and Paul and Peter, sorry, are in focus in Acts. But from this point forward, Jerusalem and Peter just fade into the background to be replaced by Paul and the church in Europe, Rome, and beyond. It's a turning point. And it all turns on a right understanding of these words, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Nothing more, nothing less. And I pray that for us as a community, we would be defined by that same singular focus, but recognizing all at the same time that like the church in Antioch and in Jerusalem, it takes the entire community all looking towards Jesus to get this right. It's not pretty, but it is beautiful.